Amen. Well, Father, we do praise you. We know that you're on the throne, that you have an incredible plan, that nothing can thwart your plan, and that we get to get in on it, and we're excited about that. So show us, direct us, and above all, fill us with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 18 through 27, page 577 in the Bibles that we give away. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. Uh, Those of you who are at home, we can't actually bring you one, but uh, you can find one at home there. That'd be great. But we're going through Mark. We're looking at the resurrection is our hope. I found in the dictionary a definition of hope. Hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. As a verb, its definitions include expect with confidence and to cherish a desire with anticipation. Among its opposites are dejection, hopelessness, and despair. We can have hope in people, but as a whole, people can be kind or cruel or both, fickle and finite. We can have hope in our planet, but our planet is heading towards disaster and there are more plagues to come. And eventually the sun burns out. Or we can have hope in God, who has proven himself trustworthy through the cross and resurrection. His plan includes two appearances of Jesus. The first, he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. So that's the first resurrection, which gives us hope for the second resurrection, which is ours as believers. At his second coming, we are raptured, gaining new bodies that cannot die and can experience the glory of the Lord forever together. That's something worth putting our hope in. Titus 2, verse 13 says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. He is God, according to the Bible. We see here, we wait for the blessed hope, his second coming and our resurrection. That is the blessed hope. That's what we are seeing talked about in our passage of Scripture Okay, the New Testament talks about the resurrection a lot, doesn't it? Uh, especially if you read the book of Acts. That's how they witnessed. They told people Jesus rose from the dead. That's what they did over and over and over. Uh, it is factual and has always been God's plan. The resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection at the rapture is our hope. The glorious plan of God is the best plan, and no other plan will work. 
If we miss it, we are to be pitied. Look at our passage, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Therefore, or there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. Jesus spoke to them, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. The Sadducees missed the plan of God for them, and that is why I have said before, that is why they are very sad, you see. The Sadducees, as we see in our passage here, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death, so they use this uh, passage of scripture, what we call the Levirate marriage scripture, and they think that that will reveal the difficulties of the resurrection and prove their point, but Jesus shows them that they're wrong, okay? So what we see here, first of all, is that the Sadducees misunderstood marriage. Quite interestingly, the Mormons do the same thing. Because of their misunderstanding of marriage, they have developed an entire doctrine. In fact, their whole doctrinal system is founded on this belief that they stay married after death and then if they are able to, they, repop they populate a new planet and get to be their own god. That is the teaching of Mormonism. It is the basic essentials of Mormonism, but they miss the fact that we're not married after death. They completely misunderstand marriage and therefore develop this whole system that is wrong. And that is a tragic uh, Finding, I remember uh, some Mormons came over to our house. We invited them in, and they shared their, their thoughts. And then I pointed out this passage to them. The missionaries said, we've got to find this out. And so they went back to their headquarters or wherever, and apparently they have some book that they can look at. And they looked at the book, and their answer was, it's the first one. They completely missed what the passage says. You're not married after this life. Completely missed it. That's what happened with the Sadducees. They completely misunderstand marriage. Now, they bring up what's called the Levirate marriage, which is taught in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6, and some other places as well. Uh, 
by the way, this law uh, where if you are married and if a, if a man is married and he, he dies without any kids, then his brother marries his wife and they're supposed to have kids to carry on the, the line, okay? Now, uh, that was how they understood things. That was what was taught in Deuteronomy 25. Now, this law is no longer in force because the law of Moses was only temporary according to Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. So don't worry, we're not... We don't have to fulfill that law, all right? (laughs) But the principle, the principles found in this law are still in place. That's the part we want to make sure we understand. Why in the world did God put this in there in the first place for that particular time? And the, the first principle is what's called the corporate identity of human beings. You see, We in the West think of ourselves as rampant individualists, but that is not the way God wants us to see ourselves. We're supposed to see ourselves as a corporate identity. Specifically and especially us as Christians, we are the body of Christ. And we are a part of a local church where we are a family with other families all together as one large family of Christians. That's how we're supposed to, we're supposed to see ourselves like that. God wants his people to see themselves like that. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter four, verse nine. Genesis four, verse nine, when Cain had killed Abel and God said, where's your brother? And Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question echoes throughout the entire scripture with a resounding yes. We are our brother's keeper. We are in this together. We sink or swim together. And that's the way God made it, and that is good. So here we see this corporate identity, uh, quite fascinatingly, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, it speaks of how uh, God called the Jewish people to be his special possession. That they, and then he's using them to reach out to the whole world. But we see this, we see this idea back in Joshua, Joshua 7, verse 11, when Achan, remember, he stole some things, and then a bunch of the Israelites actually get killed. And in Joshua 7, 11, it says, my people sinned. It was just Achan, right? But Achan was a part of the people. And so they suffered together because of it. Because we're supposed to see ourselves in this together. Your sins affect me and my sins affect you. We're in this together. We need to see this. It's quite fascinating in the Old Testament uh, they saw themselves as a, as a people, as the people of God that extended back to the past. And that's why they were so careful about burying them, their, their dead with their forefathers. So they, they, they saw themselves as going back to the past, but also moving forward into the future. So as a people that goes back to the past and, and forward into the future, thus the reason why uh, for this particular law, a line of progeny into the future, They saw themselves as a people, not isolated individuals. And that's the principle we must still see today. This 
will become very, very important this year as we seek to emphasize hospitality and fellowship. We need each other. Okay. So corporate identity, but not only that, children are important in God's plan. Children are important in God's plan. We, we saw this uh, a couple weeks ago. We um, dedicated Ezra, and, and it was, I just love babies. Do you love babies? Did you know that God loves babies? Loves kids, okay? This is his plan. Children are very important to God. Mark 10, 13 through 16 brings that, this out. But our world no longer values children. Or the elderly. There's a particular verse I want you to look at. Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 50. This is a fascinating verse because this is a verse about a curse that's going to come upon the people of God when they sin. It says this particular curse, a a group of people whose language they don't understand. It says in verse 50, a ruthless nation showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young, that they're the ones that are going to subjugate them, okay? Now notice this curse, this cursed people showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young. And that's exactly where we see ourselves today, isn't it? In our society, there is no respect for the elderly. They're just like people, ah, we just got to keep them alive or whatever. And that's our thought instead of seeing them as people with wisdom. No respect for the elderly and no care for the children. And so please, Pregnancy Resource Center that is seeking to to save the babies, please get involved, help them out. We need to be a people who do care about the elderly and the children. Babies are a part of God's plan. He wants us to have lots of them. <laughs> Cole and Laura just had a baby. Did you hear? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Benjamin. No, no. Uh, William. That's his name. William. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Love babies. Okay, so uh, I was going to say, um, there's this Benjamin, my, I get, I'm getting the babies confused. <laughs> it's good to have lots of them, that way I can be very confused. Okay, children are very important in God's plan, but what they missed, okay, the, back to the Sadducees, the marriage is for this life, that was God's plan. Marriage is for this life. First Corinthians 7, we don't have time to look at it, but that whole uh, chapter is all about marriage. It shows and goes into uh, the reasons why that marriage is a beautiful and sacred gift. And therefore, sexual relations are only to be within a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the very clear teaching of Scripture. 
Okay? And so we see that, that marriage is for this life. It's beautiful, it's sacred, but also it's quite fascinating in that passage that singleness is very valuable. That's what we see in that passage. Jesus himself was single. Paul, who's writing that passage, was single. And so we see the, the tremendous value of singleness as well. Marriage is for this life, all right? Okay, uh, so the Sadducees misunderstood marriage. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit, uh, more in just a little bit. In uh, verses 24 and 25, we see that the Sadducees misunderstood the scriptures and the power of God. Look what it says. Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, it says they're like angels. They're not angels. That whole belief that we become angels when we die, that's not true, okay? I was just going to say that's baloney, but that would have been not very nice to say. But it's just simply, it's not true, okay? We're, we're not, we're not, we don't become angels, but we are like angels in this respect that we're not married, that's what he's saying in this passage. They misunderstood this. They showed that they don't know the scriptures or the power of God, okay? Uh, now, that is tragic. By the way, that's tragic for any church as well to not understand the scriptures and the power of God. Quite often, churches will emphasize one or the other. Sometimes we have you know, churches that really emphasize the power of God and miracles and prayer, et cetera, et cetera, but are very shy on the word of God. Others emphasize the word of God uh, and really dig into the scriptures, but sometimes are very somewhat shallow on believing and experiencing the miracles of God and the power of God. I think God wants us to be word and spirit churches. And so we see here, uh, this is where they blew it. They, they missed both counts, <laughs> the power of God and the scriptures. Oh, I have a, uh, a passage on my, in a commentary on my phone. He says, but they also, this is the Sadducees, they also denied the power of God. What kind of a God did they worship anyway? A God who could not raise the dead? What a poor, puny little God they had invented for themselves. A God no bigger than they were. The God of the so-called liberals today. A God who can create galaxies is not a God to be stopped cold by the fact of physical death. A God who can make a body of the dust of the earth, a body so complex that even modern science knows but few of its mysteries, endow that body with life, bestow upon it intellect, emotions, and will, and give it a spirit of its own is not a God to be balked by death. It is no more remarkable that we should live again than it is that we should live at all. The Sadducees were small-minded indeed. No, they denied the resurrection. It says in verse 18, but the resurrection is our hope. It says that they misunderstood the scriptures and the power of God. The scriptures are our lifeline and ultimate source of truth. 
We need to know the scriptures. Every single believer needs to be a student of the Bible. And we dig in and we gain the depths from it. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and active. It's not just a dead book. It's alive. It can point us to Jesus and experience of him. Now, Jesus confronts their error. Did you see that? He's confronting the Sadducees and confronting them specifically in their error. Are we supposed to point out theological error? Well, Jesus did. That's what we're seeing here, right? Paul did. Paul even named names in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, in 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 18, in 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15. He specifically names names of people who he says are going astray and leading others astray in doctrine. Hymenius and others are specifically named by name because it's dangerous. By the way, you can think, well, should we be arguing over everything? Okay, There are three kinds of doctrine. That's the way I see it, okay? Three kinds of doctrine. I think the scriptures teach this, actually. There are essential doctrines, there are dangerous doctrines, and there are important doctrines. The essential doctrines are the doctrines that if you disagree, you are outside of the kingdom, according to the Bible. Galatians 1 brings this out. You have to have the right gospel. You also have to have the right God, those are the essential doctrines that are surrounding those two facts. You have to have the right God and the right gospel. But there are also dangerous doctrines, very dangerous to lead people astray. You have to have the right source of final authority, that the scriptures are without error. You have to have the right basic moral code, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or chapter 6, sorry. We see this, that we have to have, there are dangerous doctrines that we need to be aware of. And then there are important doctrines. All other doctrines are important. If it's in the Bible, it has to be important. There are no unimportant doctrines, but not important enough to divide over. Doctrines that we can agree to disagree agreeably on and hopefully dialogue over and maybe learn from each other as we dialogue. I think the uh, evangelical and charismatic churches have been dialoguing and learning from each other. So that's one example of a good thing, of unity taking place because of that. But we need to talk about this. So doctrine is, all doctrine is important and some even worth dividing over and confronting. Jesus is confronting them over their doctrine of the resurrection because they did not believe in the resurrection and that was an essential doctrine see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So they, it says here that they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. The Holy Spirit is our power. The Holy Spirit, he is our empowerer. I know that's not actually a word, but it should be. Yes, <laughs> empowerer. <laughs> Okay, he is our empowerer, the Holy Spirit. He is a person and he is in charge 
Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, bring that out very clearly. The Holy Spirit is not just a force. He is a person. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say they lied to God, so it shows that the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. They lied to him. Other passages say that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You cannot grieve or lie to a force or a concept. You can only lie and grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is personal, and he's God, so he's in charge. But he's also our seal and down payment. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Ephesians 1, this is an incredible promise to all true believers. Ephesians 1, verse 13, it says, in him, that's in Christ, okay? That means a personal relationship with Christ, where you've been born again, you are in him. When you are in him, you were also you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The moment you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says, right? Not something afterwards. This is the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. He is the down payment, the arabone in the Greek, and it means a down payment. You know what a down payment is? Okay, you, you, you're gonna buy a car, and the car costs $20,000, and you put down $1,000, right? So the $1,000 is the down payment. It's a promise that you're gonna pay the rest, but it's not just a promise, is it? It's actually an amount. You're actually giving something. So it's not just a promise. The Holy Spirit is not just a promise. He's actually God himself who comes to live within us (laughs) and empower us, to empower us to be able to live a holy life, to empower us to lead us in the life he's calling each of us because he has a plan for each and every one of us, and also to empower us to be able to be his witnesses. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Very important passage. Before the day of Pentecost, Jesus, just before he ascends to heaven, he gives them this teaching about the Holy Spirit to come specifically calls this the baptism in the Holy Spirit in verse 5. And in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The primary reason for the empowering is that we might be effective witnesses. God has a plan for each and every one of us to share our faith. And so he's calling us, he's empowering us. The Holy Spirit is our power. They completely miss it. They don't understand the power of God, that God is able to raise the dead. And the power that God gives us by putting the Holy Spirit in us. 
they miss the resurrection. They, they didn't believe that there was life after death. But the life to come will be glorious, won't it? Glorious. It says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You think, oh, that doesn't sound as nice. Listen to the way uh, Daniel Aiken puts it. He's, first of all, he speaks of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says it so well. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. Now, he misquotes Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards did not say in heaven. He kind of has a misunderstanding. We don't get our new bodies in heaven. When you die, you go to be with the Lord in heaven, your spirit does, but you are not complete until the resurrection. When you receive your body, your glorified body that cannot be corrupted. We'll get to that in just a moment, okay? but, he, but I like his quote anyway. He, he goes on and he says, no one will be disappointed in any way when they get to heaven. No one will be deprived of one thing that is necessary for maximum joy, optimal happiness, and complete satisfaction. Our relationship with Jesus and with all of our brothers and sisters will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all earthly marital bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison. Heaven is indeed God's perfect plan for his children who have come to him through his son, Jesus. The life to come will be glorious. But unbelievers can't realize this, won't experience this. They're, they will not even realize their own purpose, the very reason God made them. And that is sad. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Ecclesiastes, I believe, is a book for today. Amazing truths when it presents life under the sun, from an under the sun perspective, which is what every people, all the people in our world today are seeing things from. It's just the here and now, and that's it. And they're completely missing. All is vanity when viewed that way. He says in verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. When Christ returns and we receive those new bodies at that time, Every, the, the total and complete fulfillment is experienced. He says he has put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. He's placed within every single human being the fact that we will live forever, but they squelch it, they misunderstand it, they set it aside and they live for the now and they miss this important truth of the resurrection. But God calls us to believe. He calls us to believe. It's a choice, the greatest decision you will ever make. And finally, 
Jesus gives his biblical response that in fact we do rise from the dead. There is a resurrection, and it's quite fascinating that he uses Moses' law, okay? He's pointing to Moses because the Sadducees only used the first five books of the Bible. They only saw them as the most authoritative. So that's interesting. He points to Moses, and he says, and as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. The resurrection makes all the difference. He's not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. He's their God. He's the God of the living, is what Jesus is saying here. In the resurrection, we receive new bodies. Now, the older you get, the more precious this becomes. We receive new bodies. But this was predicted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament in Job 19, 25 through 27, in Psalm 16, 9 through 11, in Daniel 12, verse 2. And also, as Jesus is pointing out, it's at least implied even in the book of Moses. But in the New Testament, it goes into more detail. And I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Look at this passage. Uh, It's a passage quite often read at Christian funerals, and rightfully so, simply because it brings so much hope when we lose a loved one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of the rapture. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. You see, the unbelievers have no hope. They don't have hope, okay? Even if they have a false hope, it's a false hope. But we have this hope, and so we don't grieve like they grieve. We do grieve because we miss those we've We've lost, okay? But we don't grieve like they grieve because we know we're going to see them again. He goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's going to bring with him those who have died. They're already with him in spirit, in heaven. He's going to bring them with him. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming, so at the second coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's apparently very loud. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So their bodies rise to meet their spirits in the air. They get new bodies, though. They're refurbished. We'll see that when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? But they will rise. Then we, who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's when we get our new bodies, just kind of a poof, you know, as we're going up. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15 says it's in the twinkling of an eye. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those are encouraging words. There's hope there. 
We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. It's about Jesus' resurrection and our promised resurrection to come. And he speaks of how important it is as a central, essential doctrine. But I want you to look at verse 50. He says, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, apparently the trumpet of 1 Corinthians 14 is the last trumpet according to this passage here. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Incorruptible bodies, bodies that can't get sick, no COVID. Bodies that can't die, that can't wear out. We have to get a new hip and other things like that. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's calling us to perseverance, specifically and especially in the Lord's work, because if we are our brother's keeper, if we're in this together, we have to reach out to the lost who don't know Christ and have no hope. He's calling us to this work We have to be faithful. We can't just say, well, I just want to kick back and enjoy. He has a purpose, a calling for us while we're here. And the second coming is our hope, according to Titus chapter 2.13. It is our blessed hope. You see, if our hope is in this world, we are hopeless. Utopia can't exist until Jesus comes back. The world wants a reset. It wants a redistribution of wealth where we reset everything. That's what it's called. It it thinks it can bring about a utopia. But listen, that's already been tried. A reset already took place at the flood. And human beings quickly showed the sinful nature of the heart. And then they started trying to build a tower to make a name for themselves, globalism. Others want a new set of laws. Let's get a new set of laws. But that was already tried with Moses. The world needs Jesus. The first and second comings of Christ with the promise of our resurrection. 
Have you entered God's plan for you? Do you have the hope of the resurrection? Now I want to show a video that I'm sorry our our uh, audience doesn't get to see it on live stream, but I do include the uh, the live stream where, where you can go see the video in uh, Harvest News as well as on harvestmn.com. So, uh, but we get to watch a video, okay? And this is on the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, which is our hope for our resurrection as well. Let's watch it. Dude. Hey, what's up? What you reading? The Bible. You're reading the Bible? Yeah. Dude, why are you reading the Bible? For class? No, I just... Okay, so you're just reading the Bible. You're just sitting here in a coffee shop in the 21st century using state-of-the-art technology to read ancient myths for no reason whatsoever. Well... Tell me something. Are you one of those super religious people who thinks Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, I do believe that... Do you also believe in the Easter Bunny? Santa Claus? Unicorns? Bigfoot? Ever been abducted by aliens? And do you buy into all those other ancient myths about dying and rising gods invented by primitive nomadic tribes back in the Bronze Age? No. Okay, so what's the difference between Jesus rising from the dead and all those other fairy tales? Here's the difference. My belief in the resurrection of Jesus is rational. It's based on historical facts. <laughs> facts? What facts? Well, first, Jesus died by crucifixion. Whoa, hold on. We don't even know if Jesus existed. Why should I believe your facts? Well, because the five facts I'm going to give you are backed by so much historical evidence that most professional critical scholars who study the subject accept them as true. That includes skeptical atheist scholars. Okay, so Jesus was a guy who actually existed and then got himself killed. So what? That's the first fact. Second, his disciples were convinced that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Third, Paul, a sworn enemy of the early Christians, suddenly became a Christian. Fourth, Jesus' skeptical brother James also became a Christian. And fifth, the tomb where they put Jesus' body was empty. And those are well-established historical facts. Right, but you can't just leave it there. These facts demand an explanation. Otherwise, you've got a big hole in human history. Okay, here's an explanation. They all lied. It was a conspiracy, the most monumental prank ever perpetrated. His followers stole his corpse from the tomb and then started telling everybody he was alive. That's the conspiracy theory. The problem is it doesn't explain the facts. How do a few spineless fishermen, cringing in fear for their lives, subdue a bunch of well-armed, professional Roman guards, roll away a two-ton stone, steal a body, then hide it from a city swarming with people trying to find it? And why would they do it? The disciples had absolutely nothing to gain by lying about Jesus' resurrection. In fact, they were persecuted. And we have good historical evidence that five of them were martyred because of their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Apparently, not a single one of them ever recanted. People don't willingly die for something they know isn't true. They were there. They knew whether it was true or not. All right, another theory. The disciples thought they saw Jesus alive after he died, but it was just wishful thinking. They were stressed and just kind of hallucinated. The hallucination theory also lacks explanatory power. 500 witnesses saw Jesus at the same time, and the disciples touched him. Psychologists have shown that hallucinations don't work like that, nor does this explain the empty tomb. 
Okay, look, maybe there's some other explanation, but the bottom line is dead people stay dead. Rising from the dead would be a supernatural event, a miracle, and science has proven that miracles don't happen. Oh, really? When did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I just kind of heard it somewhere. Science has not disproven miracles. In fact, that would be impossible. Why? Science deals exclusively with natural phenomena, physical matter and material processes, right? Uh, yeah. But a miracle, by definition, is not a natural phenomenon. It's supernatural. So? So a supernatural event would lie outside the boundaries of science. It's logically impossible for science to throw out any hypothesis that lies outside its boundaries. Why have I never heard this stuff before? I don't know. Maybe because it's scary? Scary? Yeah. As long as Jesus rising from the dead is just a fairy tale, like Santa Claus and unicorns, it doesn't threaten my little world. But if it's a fact, if he actually did rise from the dead, that's huge. It's a total game changer. And that's why it's so hard to think about it objectively. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big whoa.